Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. So I want to start with a hearty word of gratitude. I know many of you prayed, been praying for my mom and, and uh, me and my sister is We've been transitioning my mom. We, we got her moved last week into assisted living, and uh, it's a really good place for her, and um, I can tell you some stories later that were pretty, pretty enlightening for me, but it's a good community for her, and they're all juiced that she plays the piano, so uh, I think Saturday nights and Sunday morning are about to change in Princeton assisting living, so they're, they're happy about that, so... Uh, today, we're going to do our month, third monthly installment of what we've labeled a Christ-centered uh, hermeneutic. I really have two objectives today. One is, hopefully, to strengthen our understanding of what we need or what we need by the term Christ-centered hermeneutic, while at the same time, perhaps, dropping the word hermeneutic. <laughs> so... We'll, we'll see. The term's been kind of trippy for us. Uh, it's a good word. I'll say a little bit more about that. But the second objective today is to introduce a new angle. That's kind of our objective each month is, is to kind of look at uh, this from a different angle. And so we'll do that uh, this morning. Hermeneutics, it's an interesting word. It, admittedly, it's been a little bit confusing uh, for many of us, um, we'll also, by the way, discuss it. And we have Tuesday night discussions once a month. We'll do that this Tuesday night, six thirty here. I'm sure Brian will announce that later. Hermeneutics—it's an, an interesting word. Uh, it's been uh, confusing for some, especially those of us who have church backgrounds. And the reason I think is it's always been used in a particular way for many of us. It's been used as a way that we interpret Scripture. Um, we're accustomed to that. But the word simply means interpretation. It's not a, it's not a word that is technically tethered uh, to the Bible. It just means how we see, how we interpret, how we make sense of something. And we've been trying to use it in that context um, We've been using it in the context of how we see our lives, how we interpret our lives, how we process our lives. We've been trying to use it in the context of our relationships with each other, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our worlds, those relationships. How do we see them? How do we interpret the differences that we feel in relationships? How do we orient ourselves in the midst of sometimes difficult relationships? How where does our understanding of how to navigate that come from? Our community, as a church community, how do we navigate being and doing life together? We have something in common, if you're a follower of Jesus, and that is it's a life that we have come to live in, a life that is, is almost mysterious, this thing called church that Scripture says God is manifesting His 
manifold or diverse wisdom through the church? How do we share in this remarkable, energized life together who also are diverse? And then how do we navigate our lives living in this life in our world, in the culture, with our neighbor, with our coworker, with the issues of the day, in the political arenas of the day, in the cultural issues? How do we, where do, and how do we take our cues? How are we then, as Francis Schaeffer said 50 years ago, how shall we then live? That's what we're trying to get at with this Christ-centered hermeneutic. It's not, per se, a series of messages about Scripture, per se. It's about how we see, how we look, how we orient. As I've reflected uh, on the difficulty uh, for some that the H word has presented uh, for us, it's been clear to me that it doesn't really capture what I, all, all that I'm trying to get at. One, one short word we've used as sort of a synonym is lens, how we see. Um, but as I've reflected on it fur, further, I'm, I'm really trying to say more than just how we see. I'm trying to get at more than that. So I'm, it's not that I'm never going to use it again, but I'm going to sort of drop the word. And I want us to think about this, not as just how we see, because I think that's too narrow and restrictive for what we're trying to get at. What I'm trying to articulate is what does it mean to live a Christ-centered life? That's what I'm trying to get at. What does it mean to live a Christ-centered life? And then how do we do life together as a Christ-centered community. One of the misunderstandings with the term hermeneutics is somehow that's come to be received as, I'm just going to be honest, I have a low view of Scripture, which has been really perplexing to me. To pit Christ and Scripture against one another has never been the the intention I've had at all. The Scripture points to, champions, celebrates Christ-centeredness. So why would they ever be pitted against? So I want to be clear this morning And say again, that has never been even one angle, one percentage of my intention in my heart. In fact, I want to be clear about this. To say that we hold a Christ-centered hermeneutic means we must value Scripture as Christ did. Jesus knew the Scriptures. Jesus grew up with the scriptures. He was immersed in it. I don't know if he memorized the entire Old Testament or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, but it would not be surprising if he had. Many Jewish boys were required to do so. 
Christ consulted the Scriptures often in His teaching. Christ was comforted by the Scriptures. He found wisdom in the Scriptures. He was strengthened by the Scriptures. If anything you get from this series, I would submit to you that it should cause all of us to ask, do we value and work with Scripture as Christ did? I hope that weighs heavier than anything. We can consult the Apostle Paul here. His life lens hermeneutic was thoroughly Christ-centered. Paul who said, for me to live is Christ. Paul who said, I have been crucified. I have put my life to death at the mercy, at the work of Christ. He said, to the point he said, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. That's what we're trying to get at. Christ who wrote the church in Colossae. Christ who is our life. Paul who said in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You don't get one without the other. Resurrection and suffering. Becoming like him, he said, in his death, so that I might attain the resurrection. Paul, who wrote the community again at Colossae, set your minds and set your heart on Christ. Paul, who said to the church at Corinth, listen to this one, imitate me, he said, as I imitate Christ. Listen, church, there's no deeper, more robust, thorough form of being a disciple of someone than imitation. Think about what he's saying when he's saying imitate. He's saying become like him, do what he does, become him in every way you can. It's a striking statement. He's saying center your entire being. In, on, through, with the life of Jesus. That's what we're trying to get at. For Paul, a Christ-centered life was the only life worth living. I want us to listen to Paul's words uh, to his protege, Timothy. One of his proteges. This is in 2 Timothy 3, 14. I'm going to read through 17. It'll be familiar words for some of us. He says to Timothy, as for you, he's been talking about people who are being deceptive uh, in the community, but he says, as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of and how from, and, and, and because you know from whom you've learned it, about missed a phrase, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15 or 16, he says, All Scripture is God-breathed. We've looked at that. 
before and is useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's an amazing text. We see in these few sentences Paul's value of Scripture. We see he exposes, in, in a couple words here, purpose. He says, it's able. The Scripture is able, capable of making you wise for salvation. And then he says, it's useful. It's useful. It's able. It's useful for Correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. But we also see here Paul demonstrates the supremacy of Jesus. Paul always demonstrates the supremacy of Jesus. He says it's able to make you what? Wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Christ. Salvation is for all our lives. And it's all about Christ in us. Christ with us. Christ over us. Christ for us. He's our Savior and our Lord. So, how do you know if you have a Christ-centered hermeneutic? Here's some cues. Do you believe, as Paul wrote, and let me, I want to give a caveat real quick. You may not believe these things yet. There may be someone here, I know most of you, I don't know all of you, you may be still thinking about these things or just starting to think about them or checking them out, and if that's you, uh, I don't want you to feel any like sense of I'm an outsider here or I don't belong. Uh, we welcome those questions that you might have. So, here's some cues about Christ-centered hermeneutic. Do you believe, as Paul wrote, that Christ and Christ alone is the image of the invisible God? Do you believe that in Him and through Him the universe was created? Do you believe in and through Him all things hold together? then you might have a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Do you believe that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, as the writer of Hebrews wrote? The exact representation of his being. Do you believe he is right now, physics majors, this is for you, sustaining all things, sustaining all things in the universe by his powerful word? Then you might have a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Do you believe Christ is the eternal Lagos, the Word who became flesh, the Word of God that became personal, that has made God's steadfast dwelling among us, unprecedented before Christ came, steadfast dwelling in those who belong to Him? And do you believe that that now continues through Christ's Spirit? If you believe those things, then you might possess a Christ-centered hermeneutic. Why do I say might? I say might because these are more than cold, hard, orthodox facts. It's not enough just to believe them. 
in a cognitive way, there's a more important question. And that is, are these beliefs personal, real, and present for you? I mean, I know those are big theological questions. And don't get tripped up by that. I'm just asking, is Christ real for you? Do you belong to him? Hell is filled with cold, hard orthodoxy. James wrote, even the demons believe and they live in, excuse me, they live in fear. It's not enough to just believe. The demons are orthodox in their beliefs and they tremble. So are you at peace in your relationship with Christ? Is your belief personal? Is Christ truly your life? Is there evidence in your life that that's the case? Are the fruits Paul talks about in Galatians 5, I'm not saying have you perfected them, I doubt you have, but are, is there evidence of them? That's a cue. Have you experienced the arrival, the coming in of Christ's life? What Jesus called new birth from above. Or, as he also said in John, are rivers of living water flowing through your life? That was his promise. Are you now engaging in this life with Christ? Because this life is not just wrapped up in some transaction you made at church camp or when you were a kid or a prayer that you prayed. It's wrapped up in all of your life. Does it mean we live in it perfectly every moment? We don't. Does it mean we never forget how we're supposed to be living? We do. It doesn't mean our own desires and, and ambitions and, and flesh doesn't overwhelm us sometimes. They do. But is Christ your life? Are you abiding in his life, as Jesus said in John 15? Are you seeking to imitate his life? Are you practicing setting your mind and heart on Christ? Are you aware that you have access to the mind of Christ? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. It's not something out there somewhere. It's living. Do you believe the words of Romans 8, which declares that those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. I know this is a lot to take in. I'm giving you like different streams of evidence. If Christ is not at the bullseye of your life, then I want to ask you, what is? What is? If these matters aren't real, personal, and present for you, then what is? Because I want to submit to you that you can't practice biblical discipleship without these truths embedded in your life. You can like or not like the word hermeneutic. It makes no difference to me. You can not like it. But if Christ is not at the center of your life, that's not biblical discipleship. Anything and everything else is not Christ and not God. Anything else that is not God at the center of your life is called an idol.
Is Christ becoming enough for you in these days? Especially in these days. When it it seems like the temptation is so strong to distract ourselves. We, We just long for life to be good again. And so if we can distract ourselves with remodeling our house or getting caught up in sports... planning the next vacation. Those are all fine things. There's nothing wrong with them. Putting our hope in the stock market or in our kids. If any of those things are at the bullseye of your life, that's an idol. Christ alone belongs there. That's what we're getting at. That was our first objective. When Christ, and I'm speaking a little bit from just personally here, when Christ becomes your life in a real and present way, nothing else will do. We may give, we may give ourselves to it sometimes, that whatever the other thing is, it won't satisfy It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's something we deem sacred or not. Church, scripture, loyalty, community. If it's not Jesus, those things won't satisfy you. Christ alone. In him we live and move and have our being. I want to shift to the second objective. Today we're going to consider for a few minutes a new angle not, not a new idea, just a new way of thinking about it. It is the way of wisdom. Wisdom. Why wisdom? Wisdom, first of all, again, personally, as I've like given reflection and study and prayer over the last several months about this topic, wisdom keeps showing up. Uh, not just in my study, but just in my thinking, in my heart. My preparation. Wisdom is critically important for the way that we see and do life. We, I think of the first installment, we, we kind of showed on the screen three like primary sources of the way that we see and process life. If you remember, we had God's Spirit, uh, we had His Word, and we had Jesus at the center. And I think that one of the things we could add, I'm not necessarily saying they belong in in that trifecta, but it's important. And you know what that thing is? It's you. Because you bring your own story and uh, personality and baggage and beliefs and pain and gifts into how you see life, as you should. And so as we think about what contribution do we bring, what I want to do this morning is to say wisdom is a gift from God that must be formed in us that allows us to orient, see, interpret well. Nick's going to read a passage in a few minutes. It's not yet, Nick. You don't have to get nervous yet. But he's going to read a passage as we close this morning 
about the pursuit of wisdom. We can't, here's why wisdom is so important. You can't see clearly the issues in your life, the issues in your heart, the issues in your neighbor. You're never going to see them exhaustively, first of all. But you can't even see them with clarity if you're not seeing it the way God sees it. That's wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see my life, my relationships, my circumstances, like God does. And then there's another piece of wisdom. It's then to act well, appropriately, not perfectly, but to act perfect, uh, appropriately out of what I'm seeing from the perspective of God. And so what we're championing, again, to kind of close a loop here, is that perspective of God is going to be found most clearly in Jesus because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Are you seeing how Scripture and Jesus, that's why you don't have to pit them against each other. They're not just friends, they're much more. They're the Word of God, one the written Word, one the Word that became flesh. So that's our working definition of wisdom, seeing my life, the events of my life, the relationships of my life, circumstances of my life, as God does, and then doing in response to that. So let me say a few other things about wisdom. We're going to actually continue the conversation next week about wisdom. I just couldn't get it in one week, and let, you know, I didn't want to take your lunch away. So, uh, so let me say a little bit more about what wisdom is. I want to give kind of three components. There's actually a whole lot more. Uh, so I, I, I'm not attempting to be exhaustive here. I don't think I would know how. But wisdom has a strong, kind of as its core, a moral component. There's a sort of righteous living at, at wisdom. Uh, but it also has this other component that's kind of a skill dimension. Like even like in very practical matters, as like George being skilled at woodworking. Biblically speaking, it would, wouldn't be inappropriate to say George has wisdom with wood. You might have wisdom with food or with physics or with math or with literature or political issues. You've gained wisdom because you've immersed yourself in it. You've engaged with it. You've put your hands on it. You've not just thought about it. You've gotten your hands dirty with it. That's, that's this kind of both um, seeing and doing component of wisdom. There's also kind of a third component, and I don't really have a great word for it, but I'm calling it street smarts. Wisdom has this kind of, um, wisdom kind of erodes naivety. It, it gives us a, a sort of a, we, we're, we're engaging what maybe sometimes we use or misuse, reality, that term. It's, there's, there's this like awareness and experience dimension of wisdom. But wisdom, to come back, is always fundamentally at its essence moral. It, it, it's tied to the righteousness or goodness or holiness of God, biblical wisdom. So it's moral it's about doing on the street in my life. That's wisdom as best as I can say in a, as I understand it in just a few minutes. There's a danger embedded in wisdom. 
And I want to read the danger in, from the wisdom literature. Proverbs 26, 12 says this. Do you see a man wise in his eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for that man. Interesting, isn't it? Do you see someone who always thinks they're right? Proverbs says there's more hope for a fool than that person who, all, who sees themselves as wise. Humility, in fact, humility and wisdom are first cousins. They have this in common. If you think you're humble, well, you may not be. <laughs> it, it has that kind of trait about it. If you think you're wise in your own eyes, well, it doesn't mean you have to, like, think you're stupid, right? Or to think you're always arrogant. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you're placing your opinions, your agendas at the center, then you might want to reconsider how that's going to work out for you. So, therefore, a key tenet of learning and growing in the way of wisdom is what is sometimes called an examined life. This, this really will help you get out of that, being wise in your own eyes or being arrogant, is examining your life. It takes the hole away, the blindness sometimes. When we're dealing with the issues in our lives or in our community or in our culture, in our world, they require examination if we want wisdom to be there. We can't just copy and paste someone else's belief or conviction if we want wisdom. They may be right, but we have to examine them if they're going to become ours. This is true for the issues of our own life. Proverbs says the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. But the wise man draws them out. Friends, you have to live an examined life. You have to learn how to be with yourself. And think about yourself and your life with God. You have to learn to think about your relationships with others. You have to learn to give contemplation, reflection of the issues of the day. It doesn't mean you have to become a scholar. Good, good night. I mean, very few of us, myself included, are not that. Or that you have to become an expert or master. But, but it does mean we listen to the experts and the masters in different fields, and then we examine, we give thought, often prayer to that. We talk with God, and we talk to ourselves, and we say, God, what are you seeing? In this, it doesn't mean we're always going to come to the right conclusion. Let's face it, we're human, we're limited. But it does mean as we move through life, we're growing in our ability to see life in the way God does. And you know what? That's a successful life. That's a life that's going to be an increasing measure prosperous. Whether or not you, you're prospering in the way the world says, you're supposed to be or not is another matter. It may be growing in wisdom will make life harder for you. And I think there's times in our lives it does. It doesn't mean you, you, you get to, you know, the, the prize. It's just the way it is. 
So in the first century, uh, when issues arose in the church in Jerusalem, they had a big issue. They had a group of people who were Jewish who were saying, we've got these non-Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. Jesus was Jewish, therefore they have to become Jewish. That, that was the issue. And the apostle Paul and other leaders uh, spoke into that. And what did they do? They convened. I'm sure they, it doesn't really tell us much what they did, but I imagine they studied the scriptures. I imagine they prayed, but they also conversed. And so here's what they came up. You can read this. It's in Acts chapter 15. It says, here's what we see as right to do for this community. So they weren't even copying and pasting Scripture into what they came up with. They're saying this seems right to us and to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're asking. I won't go into it. It'll take too long. But like, what we, the reason I bring that up is we see wisdom. It's a great example of a community, not just an individual, but as a, as a community coming to a place of wisdom. We have a monthly prayer gathering. Did you know that? We have one this coming Saturday morning, 9.30, right here. One of the things we want to do when we pray is ask God for wisdom together about the things we're dealing with. So I invite you, and let, let me say it a little bit stronger, I urge you, if you can make those meetings, come and pray with us. There's a lot more we could say about wisdom. We can't because of time. We'll do a little bit more this, uh, next week. But I do want to share a prayer uh, with you. It's in Colossians chapter 2. It's the first three verses. Paul wrote this to that church. He says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you guys. And for those at Laodicea, which is a neighboring community. And for all who've not met me personally, he says, here's my goal, that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order, there's a lot here in there, in order that they may know the mystery of God. Let me pause there. When he says, when Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean like a detective show. He doesn't, his primary purpose is not like this is a puzzle that you have to untangle. Mystery means to him, it was once not revealed and now it is. That's, that's the meaning of Paul's use of mystery. In the past, it's not really been known. It's, it's, there's been a puzzle to it. Now, it's being shown for what it is. So listen to the mystery. And you can do your own research on that if you're not sure about that. The mystery of God, and then what does he do with it? Namely, Christ. This is what's being revealed, is this radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Paul's like, man, we're lucky. We live in a time, our ancestors, that like we revere, you know, we, we, we go visit their tombs maybe, some of those prophets. Like, what did we do to get to be in this age? 
When the mystery of God has come into full focus. Jesus, namely Christ. In whom, listen to what he says about Christ. In whom are hidden. Wow, that's an interesting word. I should have studied it more. I'm just now realizing. Maybe I'll say something about it next week. I don't know. In whom are hidden all the treasures of what? Say it. Wisdom and knowledge. Listen, let me read that one more time. So that may, they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I pray this will not just be some theological idea for you. I pray that this, what he's talking about right here, would get on the street of your life. And you would get your hands dirty in this. Because it was not intended to make a cold, hard, orthodox belief for you. It was intended to say the treasure of my life, of wisdom and knowledge, is nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my life. I may not represent him as well as I wish I did. He is my life. Couple comments, and then Nick, you'll be up. You start getting nervous now. I want to say just two things about he's, he's not nervous. Two things about wisdom. Here's what wisdom is not wisdom is not simply experience and advanced age. Wisdom can come with experience and getting older, but you know what? So can folly. And I would, I would argue folly can come more easily sometimes than wisdom. If our eyes are not on God, the chances that folly will grow in us. If our eyes are on Jesus, the chances are good that it will. Wisdom is not resignation and removal. Like sometimes I think, I get the idea that a wise person is just kind of some sage that doesn't say anything. He's got her, her hands are folded on her lap, and she, she doesn't, you know, she's like above talking into things that she's wise or he's wise. That's not really what wisdom is. Remember, it's action. It's getting on the street with it. It's not complacency. There's, a, there's such a temptation in our culture for resignation and removal. I don't like these uncomfortable feelings. I just want life to be good. So what I'm going to do, I'm out of here. That's folly. Wherever you're going, you're going to find the same kinds of things there. It's just how life works. We have to lean into it. Wisdom teaches us that. There's this thing in Scripture called worldly wisdom, and it's not that. There is some wisdom in the world. There absolutely is. You can have some wisdom and not be a person of Jesus. Some people are good learners. But I want you to hear to this contrast from Jesus' half-brother James. He says, who's wise 
and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. There's those first cousins. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about that or deny it. Said some wisdom, that, that kind of wisdom isn't from heaven. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. And here's the punch. It's from the devil. Where you have those things, envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder in every evil practice. But, James says, wisdom from heaven is first of all pure. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. That means examining, considering. It's submissive. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and sincere. So wisdom is not getting older. It's not resignation or looking or acting like you're wise. And it's not worldly wisdom. It's something very different. Why? Because it comes from God. It comes from a different kingdom. The kind of wisdom that comes from God, we should ask for it. And we should pursue it. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. You notice how he tied spirit with wisdom and revelation? So that you may know him better. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generous, generously without finding fault. Isn't that, that's an amazing truth. Like wisdom, normally we think of as like, takes a lot of like falling down and getting back up and, you know, mistakes to kind of get there. Yeah, that's, that is a big part of it. But James says, hey, if you lack it, why don't you just ask? You ever experienced God giving you wisdom for situations? Like, boy, that was above my head. That was above my experience. God does that. Sometimes It's not the only way we get it, but certainly we better be asking for it. So I'll close with this, and Nick, you can get ready. There's another thing in Scripture that there's these invitations over and over. It's not just ask for wisdom, but to pursue wisdom. The first nine chapters, we're going to talk about the, the trifecta of wisdom literature in Scripture, which is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And you don't want one without the other two. Because Proverbs says one thing, and Ecclesiastes says, not so fast. And then Job says, yeah, that was me. So we'll talk about that next week. But in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, there's, there's kind of two voices. The one that speaks most of the time is kind of father wisdom. And he's addressing his son. And Nick's going to read from that here in a minute. Then there's also a lady wisdom that, that steps in to Proverbs 1 to 9. And sometimes she steps in and she's like issuing, like she's speaking in the market square. Lady wisdom, father wisdom. So we're going to close by hearing this invitation from father wisdom. This is from Proverbs 4, uh, first seven verses. Nick, come on up. Would you read that for us? And uh, the mic is right there, bro. And then I'll, I'll pray, uh, say a few words and pray. Proverbs 
Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Listen, my son, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I, too, was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commandments, and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Do you hear the strength of the plea? Though it cost you everything. There's not many things that's said about. Sell all you've got for this if necessary. Get wisdom. We can't successfully navigate the issues of our lives and our community and our culture without wisdom. We have to have it. Paul prayed for a spirit of wisdom and revelation for us. In Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And it even goes beyond that, which we'll look at next week. Let's pray together. Um, what is God saying to you? What's the Spirit prompting in you? What, what thoughts are in your mind or maybe emotions, feelings? I'll give you just a minute to examine that. not going to have much time, but you can begin. I'll probably say this again next week, but, and I've said it before, but when I was a young man in my 20s, my pastor challenged me to read from wisdom literature every day. And I gave myself to that for a decade. And I think it made, gave me some wisdom. It also showed me how much I still needed. It did both. Um, and that's the nature of it. When we pursue wisdom, we grow and we get exposed all at the same time. And yeah, I can tell you at my age, that's still true. But I'm grateful for his work. So what's God saying to you? Where do you need wisdom? Is there a circumstance or relationship? Is there a, a longing in your heart? Something you don't know what to do with? Maybe, maybe it's a negative emotion. Maybe it's anger or frustration or sadness. Maybe there's a grieving. Is that a place you might ask God for wisdom for, to help you see it like he does? You may be surprised. He may say, Oh, my child, I'm so glad you're grieving this. Let's talk about it. See, we often expect shame from those negative emotions. and Yeah, we need correcting sometimes. But he does never correct us with shame or condemnation. 
He says, let me show you a better way. Because I love you. You don't have to be young. You, you can be older than me and need wisdom just as sorely as I do. This is not an age thing. Lord, help us to see, interpret the moorings of our own soul, of our heart, the longings, the thoughts we have in light of your wisdom, in light of how you revealed yourself through Scripture, through the ongoing abiding presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives, supremely in Jesus, also from one another as we live this life together in community. Lord, we need to hear from one another. And Lord, we need to learn how to speak your way in your spirit. Lord, when we feel the impulse to flee because it's uncomfortable for us, Lord, we cry out for resiliency that we would stay with whatever it is we're dealing with, with you. And you would grow us. You'd grow us up. You'd mature us in Christ. Lord, we know that focusing our lens on Jesus, on your word, is a good, safe, and trustworthy way to live our lives. So give us courage to do it. We know this isn't a recipe for worldly prosperity. We'd like to have some of that. But Lord, give us a heart that wants your wisdom above all and to live our lives in light of it. We're broken. We sometimes live our lives in cycles. We do well and then we're not. God, we pray that in that, those cycles you would shape us into people learning to see like you see. We need it. In Jesus' name we pray for each of us, for those who aren't here, for those who might be watching this later, listening to it later. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.